0: Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club.
1: Good evening and welcome everybody to tonight's program at the Commonwealth Club. My name is Mary Ellen Hannibal and I'm a journalist and author of the book Citizen Scientist, Searching for Heroes and Hope in an Age of Extinction. I am very pleased and excited to be your moderator for tonight's program. So joining us tonight is Susan Hockfield, the former president of MIT and author of the new book, The Age of Living Machines, How Biology Will Build the Next Technology Revolution. The first chapter of Susan's book is entitled Where the Future Comes From, in which she explains that the convergence of physics and engineering gave us the great scientific revolution of the 20th century and brought us so many of the miracles we today take for granted like cell phones and computers, The powerful message she has for us today is that another profound scientific revolution is well underway and will mark the 21st century as the age of biology, the epoch when living systems are being integrated with human engineering to literally recreate our organic world. Her book, by the way, sounds like impossible to understand, and it's very riveting and fascinating and and, uh, will open your mind in so many ways. I'm so excited to be here tonight with her and with all of you, and so everyone, please join me in welcoming Susan Hochfeld to the Commonwealth. Yeah. So not to like get ahead of things, but I can't wait for you to tell us and tell everybody here about the virus-building battery, really. <laughs> but before uh, we get to that amazing story, you yourself are an amazing story, the first uh, living um, Living, life scientist, life scientist, living life, the first living, living scientist, the first living person to be president of MIT, (laughs) the first life scientist to be the president of MIT and the first woman to be the president of MIT, a neuroscientist who has made very profound contributions to cancer research and treatment. Is that right? Yes. Or more or less, more or less you yeah. can correct me. Yeah. So why don't we start by having you tell us a little bit about your journey and how you got to be you? Great, thank
0: you. I'm delighted to be here, and thank you all for coming. I'm a little worried about having my back to you all, so I'll try and remember to swing over to to, to talk directly to you as well as to the group right in my eyesight. Um, so the uh, my own story uh, is, I think, like many, I grew up in a family. With three girls. It's not everyone. grew up in a family with three sisters, four four girls. And um, in the 50s and 60s, and the message we got from our parents was, you can do anything. It's up to you. If you work hard, if you study hard, if you find something that you're interested in. And I was enormously fortunate to discover that I had a passion for science. And uh, to find your calling and then to be able to pursue it is the most extraordinary joy. So I was having a marvelous time as a scientist. Uh, I was part of a small group of pioneers that brought molecular biology into neuroscience. Now it sounds like ancient history, but it was um, a new and kind of uh, really exciting and kind of uh, terrifying uh, period when we were changing the paradigm for how neuroscience was done. But I ended up studying critical periods in development, understanding the molecular mechanisms by which our brains are flexible when we're young and less flexible as we get older. And I was pursuing that research with abandon and delight when I got a peculiar call from then president of Yale, Rick Levin, who told me that uh, he had received names for the next dean of the graduate school. And my name was on the list of five. He knew everyone else. He didn't know me, but he thought it would be a good idea if he got to know me. So I went in and had a conversation. He invited me then to take on this role, which I had not anticipated doing, but I realized um, that this marvelous experience I had had of pursuing my calling where my graduate education had really transformed my life, that that was possible because someone else had stepped up to the task of being the Dean, doing the responsible things that a university has to do to make the conditions right for people to discover their passions. And so, um, The second part of my career began, which I call a call to service rather than finding my calling, and I had the great privilege of leadership both at Yale University and then at MIT, Um, two very different institutions, but just, as I say, just an extraordinary privilege to be at a place where you can gaze out at the frontier of discovery and innovation and uh, have a glimpse of the future, which is why I wrote the book, is to share that glimpse with
1: all of you. So the, your uh, your your comment that you were kind of in a terrifying place of, of can you to explain what was terrifying about rewriting our knowledge about neurological development? Is that right? Yeah.
0: Well, what's terrifying about opening a new field is that um, you don't know that it's going to work. <laughs> so uh, the standard model is you kind of do what your predecessors did, and you do what the group of your colleagues is doing, and depart from that and head off in a different direction where there isn't any guarantee of success um, is exhilarating, but it's also kind of a dangerous way to build a career because your success in your career, of course, in any field, uh, but certainly the academy, is judged by your peers. And if you've got it wrong... You're going, you got
1: it wrong <laughs> <laughs> well I, I want to come back to to that because it strikes me that a lot of what we're talking you're talking about in this book is is really pushing a lot of frontiers and and there might be some some terror involved at, at some of these so to get into your book a little bit to give everybody who hasn't had a chance yet to read it you'll get it tonight and read it um, let's dive into some of the 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 um, the projects that you highlight, but then the overall, the overall gestalt of your book, which is about this great convergence of biology and engineering, a 21st century revolution coming on the heels of a 20th century revolution, and you explain that so well. I wonder if you would explain that to these guys.
0: Yeah, so my responsibility as MIT's president was to look out in the future and make sure MIT was going to be where we needed to be in 20, 25, 50 years. And, um, you know, my crystal ball gets really cloudy five years out. And I didn't have a way of actually jumping to the future. But then I realized perhaps I could figure out how to understand that if I understood how we got to the future we're living in today and the future we're living in today. Actually, you know, you all have cell phones in your pockets or handbags. It's an absolutely miraculous world that we live in. And the digital technologies that we enjoy today really were the most transformational technologies of the 20th century. And as I thought about where they come f- came from, I realized that physicists around 1900 began to discover the parts list of the physical world. J.J. Thompson discovered the electron in 1897, and pretty soon all of the atomic, you know, components were known and subatomic elements, components too. And you know, engineers love parts lists. And so they picked up those parts and invented what became the electronics industry. There wasn't an electronics industry in 1900. It didn't have a name. You know, there weren't any of these devices. And that very rapidly, you know, grew into this, not just the electronics industry, but the computer information industries. So I thought, well, that's pretty interesting. Then the dean of engineering reminded me that there were 400 faculty in the School of Engineering at MIT, but that a third of them were using biological components in their work. And... I knew about biomedicine because I had helped establish a department of biomedical engineering at Yale. But he said, no, no, it's way beyond biomedicine and began to help me understand that engineers love parts. And the new parts that were available, are available, are the parts that have been decoded by biologists through the revolutions in molecular biology and genomics. And so engineers are picking up those parts and using them to build things. So the new things that we're going to be using will have been built with biology, not just built with physics.
1: Now you've chosen uh, to highlight a number of projects in your book. There's many more that you could have chosen. Um, I can't remember if I read it in your book or I, I watched some of uh, Susan's online, you know, there's YouTube videos of of talks that she's given elsewhere, which are really, really worthwhile to listen to. Um, and I believe somewhere you said, I picked the things that... Uh, are focused on areas that we really have to find some solutions in, if we aren't going to tear uh, this Earth from limb to limb in the coming years. So uh, one of these areas is energy. Um, my favorite story in the book is is uh, is Angie Belcher, right? And her, she, this is a woman at MIT who is building batteries that really work uh, using viruses. So. How does that happen?
0: (laughs) (laughs) So, um, you know, we have a lot of daunting challenges ahead of us. Uh, I tend to be an optimist, but the challenges are terrifying. We've got somewhere north of seven and a half billion people on the planet. And it is predicted, and I think with very good reason, that there'll be over uh, 9.7 billion by 2050. And already we're just not doing a great job at the things that we need. So we are challenged in terms of how we produce energy and use it. It's not sustainable. We're going to have to double our energy. We will double our energy use by 2050. Uh, We will need more food. The way it's calculated now, each of us will have one half acre to live from on food. And, uh, you know, that's just If that's going to be true, we're going to have to really increase the way we produce food, water, insufficiency, And um, healthcare, a crazy expense, and we don't know how to deliver it more accessibly and less expensively. And if we don't get these things right, we're going to be where Malthus predicted Britain would be in the 1800s, with population growing faster than the resources to provide for them. So he predicted what has always happened in history, war, famine, pestilence. But in fact, as the human race has been challenged about resources in the past, We've saved ourselves through the invention of new technologies. And so I think that many of the technologies that I highlight in the book, maybe not they themselves, but this theme of a new source of new technologies may actually save the day again. We may cheat Malthus again. So virus-made batteries. Um, You know, uh, fossil fuel is uh, not a sustainable way of producing energy, and particularly not with a growing population. And we are enthusiastic about alternative energy technologies. We love solar. We love wind. Well, we love them when the sun is shining and the wind's blowing, but that doesn't always happen. They're intermittent. And for solar or wind to be really a sustainable and re- uh, energy that replaces fossil fuels, we have to be much better at energy storage. So the technologies for energy storage are the rate-limiting technologies for alternative energies. And if we don't get better at you know, they're not really going to be grown-up energy sources, so to speak. So um, batteries, great. We can make batteries. We can build acres of battery manufacturing plants. But the way we manufacture batteries today is just not that good. Requires enormous input of energy, very high temperatures, and produces a lot of toxic byproducts. Not sustainable. So my colleague, Angie Belcher, um, when she was a graduate student at UC Santa Barbara, loved walking along the beach, I love walking along the beach also, but she has a different fascination. She was fascinated by the abalone, the abalone shell. So abalone are sea snails that pick up components from the sea and build a shell that is incredibly strong and very lightweight. When the abalone dies, the shell disintegrates back into its component parts for the next abalone or the next sea creature to build something. And as Angie walked along the beach holding the abalone shell, she thought, if abalone can build their technology without contaminating their world, why can't we build our, our technologies? Maybe we could use nature's genius to build the technologies we need. Um, through a, a complicated path, as all new innovation follows, uh, Angie has figured out how to use viruses, benign lab strains of viruses, that um, she has engineered and evolved using every technique known to science today to build batteries, engineer viruses that organize the components of batteries. These virus-made batteries are composed of cathodes and anodes. She puts them together, and the battery she builds have the, same, have the same charge density as state-of-the-art lithium-ion batteries, and also and cycle as many times as state-of-the-art lithium-ion batteries. The important thing about Angie's technology, though, is she can build these batteries at room temperature without any toxic byproducts. That would be an enormous advance. When I got back from, you know, one of these talks, and I was telling her about some of the questions I had received, some of the enthusiasm I had received, she said, oh, um, you know, we're not making lithium batteries anymore. We now have a battery that's made without lithium and without cobalt. So... That is also, right now, a big impediment to building the kind of batteries, the magnitude batteries we're going to need. So, you know, to me, this is just a spectacular example of using nature's genius to build the technologies we need and doing it in a way as nature does without contaminating our world. Is this called biomimicry? Uh, This one is not biomimicry. Biomimicry is modeling something on a pattern that we see in biology. Uh-huh. So, I mean, it's it's about the same thing, but um, biomimicry... Is, uh,
1: this is like another step
0: in. It's another step in.
1: Yeah. One of the wonderful things about your description of Angie Belcher's lab is this kind of like... Uh, united nations of all sorts of researchers coming and going and hustling around and doing all kinds of different research themselves she's she's uh the 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 center force but she's got all of these different kinds of disciplines and you're one of the things that seems to be a transformation in the university that mit and other universities are at the forefront of is really um mixing up disciplines and that's a big change in how we view how to do research is that right? It is a
0: big change, and it's not that easy to do. And so one of the things I have highlighted in the book are, are um, organizations that have figured out how to bring people together from different disciplines. The problem is if you're raised a biologist, they're very. it's very hard for you to communicate with an engineer. And if you're raised an engineer, you don't understand the language of biology. And uh, so figuring out how to bring people together so that they can pursue the solutions to a problem together is really quite a trick. My dear friend George Schultz has a marvelous way of describing this. He says, if you, if you want to land together, you better take off together.
1: And <laughs> That's <it's a> v- <laughs> fabulous. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and, and, you know, it's a very different idea from a biologist hitting a wall and saying, huh, I need an engineer to fix this as a service provider rather than as a co-collaborator. And at MIT, we have been very successful in Putting together new kind of organizational frameworks that increase the possibility that people from different disciplines can actually work together.
1: So there's a nice little uh, comment that you made, I think, in one of the videos of, of your talks that I watched about um, a friend or or someone that you met who said who you were saying you were going to write this book, and she said, "Oh, good. Uh, will you explain like what a gene is to me?" And you were kind of like, "Oh my God, you know," um, tried not to display your um, aghastness. <laughs> but I thought um, you know I know what a gene is in a way, theoretically, but i don 't really know what a gene is i don 't have a sense of feel for it and and yet this this what a gene is and what its parts are and how it works is really what is assembled or the foundation of assembling what the parts of biology yes. as as previously the parts of the physical world. Why is it that knowing the parts helps us? Um, endeavor to to make new
0: creations. Yeah, so um, yeah, I'm happy you still told the story about my friend who will always remain nameless. <laughs>
1: right, I hope she doesn't recognize you know, she's herself. She's a brilliant woman. She's a
0: fabulous, <laughs> uh, at least successful businesswoman. And I was a little surprised that she didn't know what a gene was, but I, as, I kept my face in order, so I didn't <laughs> reveal that. But, but she kind of became my guide star for writing this book because the book is for a general audience. It, uh, I've tried very hard to explain what a gene is in the context of something. Like, why would you care what a gene is? Theoretically, who cares? But what you do care what a gene is if you understand how it's being used to, for example, make a virus organize battery materials. That might be an interesting thing for you to understand. Or how um, a gene makes a, a water pour for a cell that we then use for water filtration. So... Um, I lost the thread. You, Robert, you actually that
1: you yeah. made a very nice segue into one of the stories in your book which is is the finding of this water channel component of the cell. Why don't you tell the story of this? This is an amazing story leading from the the small of the cell to the large of of commercial water filtration systems. Yeah. So water
0: is a big problem. Um, we don't have enough and we have to purify. We've been purifying. We haven't had enough for a long time. There's a marvelous drawing of uh, an Egyptian carving from 1500 BC, that shows water filtration. Uh, Socrates actually wrote about distillation, water distil- purification by distillation. So, this has been a challenge for a very long time. But uh, our current methods are slow, they're inefficient, they're expensive, and we need to get better at it. Um, so, that's where we end up. But the beginning of the story is often a completely different direction. A wonderful, wonderful hematologist named Peter Agre, as his science, he's a Clinical hematologist, but he has this uh, need to do science also. He decided he would try and find the Rh protein. Now, um, looking around the audience, most of you are of an age to remember when incompatibility between a mother's Rh factor, which is a protein on red blood cells, and the baby's could be absolutely disastrous. We learned how to manage that through a way of blocking the mother's immune response to the baby's Rh factor we didn't know what the Rh protein was. And Peter said, huh, that'd be a good problem for a hematologist. I'm going to go identify the Rh protein. And so he purified red blood cells. He'd went through this elaborate protein purification. He came up with a particular preparation. The way you test it is to make antibodies to it. So he made antibodies and realized he had not gotten the Rh protein at all. He got another protein, which he couldn't identify. He tried to identify it and, uh, I think he went back and tried a couple of times to get the Rh protein, and he kept coming up with this crazy protein. And, um, you know, when that happens in the lab, and trust me, it happens. uh, You really have to decide what to do. And uh, so he had to, you know, figure out whether he wanted to pursue something that was entirely unknown or come up with a different strategy for the Rh protein. And a colleague of his said, looked at it, and he said, you know, you may have gotten the water channel. Which is a crazy thing to say because people had pursued a water channel for decades and couldn't find it. A lot of people. And they just said, okay, there isn't a water channel. Water crosses the membranes of cells simply by diffusion. A reasonable thing to think. But then Peter said, well, the water channel, I have a a choice of going back and finding a protein that everyone cares about or pursuing a protein that no one believes exists. (laughs) Um, He's a marvelous man. He went for the one that doesn't exist, and did end up. He did have the water channel. He did win the Nobel Prize for having discovered it, an incredibly important, inc- incredibly important discovery. All of our cells have water channels. Plants have water channels. Every animal on Earth, every organism has water channels. And uh, and what he discovered, he cloned it. He purified it. It's a beautiful protein. It's really a set of protein that forms kind of like a barrel without a top and a bottom that sits in the cell membrane. Most water, there, there's a family that most of them are highly specific for water. Nothing goes through except for water. The biophysics of this protein are astonishing. So that was Peter Agre, but he published his papers. And a biophysicist entrepreneur, who I think was in Chicago at the time, read the paper describing the biophysics of this water channel. And he had an even crazier idea. He said, huh. I wonder if we could use that to purify water. It's so specific. And uh, in the course of writing the book, I went to visit his company. He's the founder and CEO of a company called Aquaporin AS. Aquaporin is the name of the water channel. And they are building water channels, water, sorry, water filters using the water channel. He prepares water channel proteins, aquaporin proteins, using the same kind of techniques used in the biopharmaceutical industry and there are uh, aquaporin based filters in homes in asia but they have ambitions of scaling this up to do commercial water purification but the whole story is so improbable
1: i mean it is uh, the, uh, the the level of intuition on the part of of all of these scientists is is very impressive their ability to follow their intuition and to then combine it with their their clinical knowledge and their direction now with the uh, with angie belchers uh, virus assembled batteries one of the ways you describe it so well and why it's you know a, a very positive way to make batteries is in in um, like the abalone shell when the abalone dies the shell disintegrates and the materials become back part of the ecosystem which then become available again to be uh, reconvened by the next abalone and so we don't have this waste prop problem that we have now with all of the, the offloading of materials that we don't even know how to decompose or do anything with. Um, is this? Uh, do you know what happens with that filtration system? Is that also kind of organically uh, decomposable? Well, so one of the things you,
0: you, um, I don't know, and it's a question that, that I should ask, but one of the uh, challenges in thinking about bio, using biological materials is both, most biological materials are kind of unstable, right? You wouldn't want to, ah, you know, build something out of most of what that's we're proposing. However, lucky for us, red blood cells, where the aquaporin channel is present in a lot and in, in, in great number, uh, actually have a very, very long life. And the proteins in red blood cells, because red blood cells don't make proteins on their own, they make them only as they're developing, are very, very stable. So luckily, aquaporin is a very stable protein. The matrices that these aquaporin proteins are put in to build the water filters, they can be as you know recyclable or not, depending on their structure. And I'm not sure that's exactly where the company
1: has focused, but it's a great question. I'll ask them the next time I speak with them. Well, it's just kind of fascinating. I mean, this is one of the things that we have such a problem with. of We uh, replicate uh, things that we need to get done in the world that are kind of copying nature, but we do it in a way that then is not biodegradable or does not return to a system, and then we're kind of stuck with it. Um, you have a couple more really fabulous stories in your book. One is about a cancer diagnostic test that would be as simple as getting like a pregnancy test over the counter at Walgreens. Yeah. Crazy. <laughs> it is. <laughs> so this Amazing. is
0: um, another just uh, remarkable innovation. But if you think about uh, many diseases and how we're going to lower the cost of health care, you know, obviously the first best thing to do is prevent, prevent disease. And so for cancer, vaccines are important. We're in an era when people have decided maybe vaccines aren't so important. Um, I would say can- vaccines that um, prevent cancer, you know, it's not a question of, of catching it from someone else. It's just a question of developing it yourself and and resisting that through vaccines. We don't have that many cancer vaccines, but they're coming along. Uh, and then, of course, um, not doing the things that we know give rise to cancer, like smoking, like going on in the sun without sunscreen. I'm guilty of that. Um, and But even if we could um, prevent, if we could activate all actions of prevention, and there are people who estimate that about 30% of cancers in the United States are preventable. But even if we did that, that's another 70% of cancers that are not preventable, and we still have to to uh, to uh, figure out a way to, to treat them. The cancer is a... Um, a very interesting biological process. It starts by one cell gaining some mutations that release it from the normal constraints of cells. And it grows, first as a small group of cells, and eventually becomes large enough and agile enough to infiltrate the tissue in which it first resides and eventually leave that tissue and metastasize elsewhere in the body. Cancer, if caught early, can be cured for almost all cancers. But we spend... I think in 2017, as a nation, we spent $150 billion on cancer treatment, but we're detecting cancer late when it's, you know, almost an incurable disease. If we could move the detection of cancer earlier, we would have a very good chance of curing cancer and, frankly, lowering the cost. We have detection methods and uh, colonoscopy and mammography, smoking sensation. Over, for the first time in you know, uh, since the beginning of time, the actually you know, rate of cancer death in the United States has started to drop because... We're doing that kind of stuff, but it's not dropping fast enough. So um, uh, Sangeeta Bhatia, who's an MD, PhD, a biomedical engineer clinician, was absolutely fascinated with this problem and through another circuitous set of accidents kind of came up with a strategy that she called synthetic biomarkers. So biomarkers are things we measure in ourselves when you have a blood test or a urine test. We're looking for biological measures of how you're doing. And so um, Sangeeta wanted to build a test that was based on something biological so we could see the process of disease. But she decided that rather than rely on detecting the cancer DNA or the cancer proteins, she would charge the system, she would challenge the system with something she had synthesized. So here's the, uh, let me (laughs) describe how this goes. I think I can make it um, clear enough. But if not, ask a question about it. So um, she's a nanotechnologist. She likes things that are small. She believes the future is small. Uh, And so she takes nanoparticles uh, and decorates them with strands of proteins. Now, one of the magnificent things about biology is there's an enormous amount of specificity. Your liver looks different from your skin. Your eye has a different structure from your ear. All of this is programmed in our genes, and there is just an incredible diversity of proteins and enzymes. Enzymes are proteins that act as a molecular scissors and will cut a specific protein, highly specific. And guess what? Cancer has its own enzymes. It has its own enzymes because the cancer cell has to figure out how to, like, invade through places where normal cells don't go. It has to figure out how to get into another, another tissue. So it has a particular set of enzymes that our bodies normally don't have
1: because, clearly, you don't want to be doing that to yourself. So the enzymes that proteins have help the protein do what it wants to do? Yes. So in this case, the protein, the cancer protein is helping the cancer invade. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. And I'm sorry, they're, all, they're proteins that are the,
0: the, the substrate that you want to get rid of, and proteins are also the enzymes that cut it up. Okay. That they're, but they're, I should just say, they're enzymes. So um, what Sangeeta realized she could do is detect a cancer not by just the protein they expressed, but by the activity. So if she could detect the cancer enzyme, she would have a way of detecting cancer. And so the little proteins that she uses, these protein um, sticks that she's put on the nanoparticles, she has engineered to have the site that cancer enzymes cut. So imagine this ball with a bunch of uh, protein stalks radiating from that, but each one at the first knuckle is a site where a cancer enzyme can cut it. So you inject these uh, protein-decorated nanoparticles. If you don't have cancer, nothing happens to them. They stay intact. But if you do have cancer, the cancer enzymes will cut off the tips. And she's engineered urine to those tips to be very, very small. So small, in fact, that they can find their way into the bloodstream, and then the kidney filters them into the urine. Most things don't get in the urine. Urine's a great background, essentially protein-free. And so, in the urine, she can detect these little fragments if the cancer is present. Now, she imagines doing it not just with one kind of protein, but a whole array, so she's sure that she has specificity for the cancer. In um, in mice, this technology allows her to detect cancers that are one tenth size of the ability of norm of current state of the art detection techniques. She started a company to get this out into the world. It's called Glimpse Bio. And um, she anticipates they're going to be in clinical trials with this diagnostic in twenty in 2020. Now, you kind of gave my punchline. Normally when I tell this story, and I said, and who has who has heard of uh, an inexpensive <laughs> urine test for something? Well, of course, over-the-counter pregnancy tests are cheap. They're accurate. They're accessible. And so Sangeeta imagines that annually part of your physical with your doctor may be a urine test that would test for any number of diseases but cancer. That's fabulous. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Now, back to our program.
1: I find that that story actually helps me visualize how these things actually happen. Just the little snipping and the little <laughs> going through the system is very um, is very visceral and clear. I was telling Susan before we, we came into the room that the one chapter in her book or the one section which she'll tell you about is that that was a little bit... Um, it was a little bit harder for me to understand, is this good, is this bad? I mean, we are talking about brave new frontiers here in all of these things, and we don't necessarily really understand uh, what the implications or the sort of downstream impacts could be from some of the things that that these kind of technologies are um, probing. But we do have this huge issue, which is that if we do really go to all these billions of people in a short period of time, We have a tremendous problem about feeding them, and we already have this gigantic, um, terrible problem of extinction going on in the world uh, of plants and animals, losing a million species within, you know, I don't know how many years, a couple decades. That's what we're on board to do, and there's a death by a thousand cuts, but a lot of that is due to habitat loss, due to converting habitat to growing food for humans. And, and so the need to, you know, really create um, very intensified agriculture to feed people more efficiently is, is of the utmost for every reason. And yet, um, well, I'll let you, Susan tell you about what this, you know, fabulous kind of work that these, these people are doing in this, in this light. Yes, yeah, so you've described the situation quite well. I visited the Danforth
0: Plant Science Center outside of St. Louis to understand the future of of agriculture. You know, as a life science, you know, a biologist, uh, botany is a, no longer a separate discipline because molecular biology obtains as much there as for uh, for, awesome. for animals. But um, but the Jim Carrington, who's the director there, said something that just I found stunning to feed 9.7 billion people. First of all, it was this half acre a ap- piece, which is kind of terrifying. Um, but he said that if we use our current methods for producing food, we would need additional farming land equal to South America and Africa combined. And, you know, that's just not happening. And it makes you feel a little daunting. You know, how in the world are we going to do this? But then he reminded me that we have increased Productivity that the amount of food per acre astonishingly. So, in 1930, in the United States, a standard farm, you know, an average, was producing 30 bushels of corn per acre. 30. Today, any guesses? 150. 150. I wish we were 400. It will be 400, but it's 150, so five times the productivity. In uh, a century. And actually, you know, there's been just a tremendous increase in in the productivity of all kinds of crops using all kinds of methods. But we've got to do more. We've got to produce more food per acre. And um, how do we do that? And, you know, we're all kind of used to the ideas of, I hope we are, genetic engineering. I'm a big fan of genetically modified organisms. We've been doing this for thousands and thousands of years before we knew they were called genes. Humans have been manipulating crops to have better food and uh, more productive uh, crops. So that's one approach. But for that, you have a gene-by-gene approach. And you know what? Nature is just too brilliant. Um, we don't know what the genes are to produce, you know, more tomatoes per plant, or um, you know, sweeter cherries. And we can draw on nature as we've done in the past by using wild plants, native plants, and crossbreeding with plants that already have characteristics that we like: that they grow well, they resist drought, they resist cold, you know, frost. Um, but the problem with that is, that's a big project to take a plant with, with characteristics you like, that you've developed, and a wild plant, produce thousands of offspring, watch them through their entire growth cycle. This is a very, very difficult task, even though we've done it pretty well. We need to accelerate our ability to do that. This, so um, what is happening at the Danforth and other places is a process they call high-throughput phenotyping. How do you examine thousands and thousands of plants using uh, the technologies at hand? And the example that I give is a fantastic combination of absolutely state-of-the-art computation married to state-of-the-art molecular biology to screen very rapidly for plants that have the characteristics that we want so that we can very much more rapidly get to the plants that will produce food the way we need to at the density that we need. Now, one of the reasons for including this chapter was just to remind me and all of us that Convergence 1.0 that has brought us all these digital wonders and continues to uh, allow us to do amazing things is going to continue to evolve. And the marriage of basically Convergence 1.0 and Convergence 2.0 are going to produce a host of technologies that we can't imagine today, but that are going to be more effective and allow us to do the things that we really need to do. Uh, so we uh, can have 9.7 billion people living, we would hope, in peace, rather than at war with one another over the resources.
1: Well, one of the uh, one of the things that you know, um, provoked me about the chapter is, I mean, we do kind of, we have had this this uh, agricultural problem or situation in the past and of course the green revolution was the the big um, moment in time when you know it was it was the prognosis was all these people were going to starve to death and then and then a combination of finding the right genetic strain of wheat Mm -hmm. and nitrogen fertilizer created the green revolution and we fed the people now The problem is we started adding all this nitrogen into the system, which some scientists say is a worse... Uh, for the system than all the CO2 that we're putting in. So it's, it's kind of a case where sometimes our solution creates then another problem. That's right. and, and that's what, I mean, uh, we have to, th- it made me think, you know, this is wonderful convergence of engineers and biologists in the labs of MIT, and maybe we need some ecologists in there too. Mm-hmm. Um, and more and more um, looking at the, how the whole system works. Um, in terms of how the whole system works and what seems like an absolute miracle is this uh, bionic signaling chapter um, that you describe of... um, You'll do a better job than I will of even describing what it is. (laughs) Yeah, so um, as a neuroscientist,
0: I I couldn't resist uh, putting a little neuroscience in. Uh, And um, there's a chapter on bionics that has two parts. One part... um, Uh, actually in both parts, uh, are related to how we can provide people with abilities who have had those abilities taken away. Uh, So part of the chapter deals with um, very smart prosthetics. And I talk about work by my colleague Hugh Herr. So Hugh is a uh, double amputee. He was caught in a mountain climbing, in a storm, mountain climbing accident when he was 17 years old. He had been a terrible student before that. But having lost his legs, he wanted to climb again. And um, the prosthetics that were available were not very good. And so he decided he was going to invent them. And he has been doing that uh, for his whole life. And he's done uh, marvelous things in inventing a computerized ankle that responds the way Uh, You know, an ankle might as you walk along. But the problem with a prosthesis is you you have no sense of where it is. You have no control over your leg. Um, It's better than nothing, but it's not good enough. And so he, with an orthopedic surgeon at Brigham and Women's Hospital, uh, designed a new way of doing an amputation uh, that allows uh, the muscles that would normally flex and extend the ankle to create a pair even without an ankle there. And then sensors that lie over those muscles detect those movements because just because you don't have an ankle doesn't mean that you can't use the muscles. Your brain still says, I'm going to flex or extend my ankle. And those those signals get sent to the muscles in your leg and are picked up by sensors and then conveyed to this enhanced computerized ankle and allows the wearer to feel the position of her or his foot and um, the story I tell is of a, a man who was also lost his uh, leg as a consequence of a climbing accident. Uh, who I mean, I, I've talked with the man, but then there's this marvelous, incredible uh, movie of him climbing again and looking upward as his foot is searching for the next toehold, and it just wow. you know, it takes yeah, it takes my breath away. Absolutely fantastic. So that's part of it, and so the. The, the the innovation around um, prostheses that respond to your brain, respond to your intent, are really part of you and feel like they're part of you rather than, you know, lugging around something that allows you to stand on your two legs but actually doesn't give you the kind of... Uh, full ability that we enjoy who have um, both of our legs. The other part of the chapter um, describes something even more remarkable. And many of you may have read or seen programs about the efforts to give speech, give the ability to move to people who have tetraplegia, quadriplegia, people who have lost the ability to move their arms and legs. In some cases, can, can, they can't speak because of a Various kind of neurologic inju- injury. Um, uh, a friend of mine uh, had ALS, and his greatest desire was to continue to be able to communicate. He said that when I stop being able to communicate, I just don't think I can go on. So many of the people, as they lose these abilities, continue their their the part that generates speech of their brain still works, but their muscles don't mm. work anymore. And so can we help these people restore some amount of a uh, function So a number of people, a lot of different labs are working on all these different uh, technologies, but I, I profile a lab um, that has many places there in Geneva. They're at Brown university. They're at mass general hospital where they're using uh, a brain-computer interface with electrodes that actually sit in the part of the brain, part of the cortex that generates movements. And through, really, again, advanced computation, amazingly advanced computation and advanced technology, they can read out the signals from the brain. And as an individual uh, thinks about moving her arm, those signals are conveyed in the first instance to a robotic arm, and in a more advanced instance, to the individual's own arm. And um, wow. these people are given the ability to um, you know, ex- you know, feed themselves for the first time in you know, 15 years wow. after a stroke. Uh, and the, the possibilities of this technology are really quite fantastic. Um, there was a report only, I think, about a month ago of reading out again these brain signals for speech, and having them play into a computer. You know, our brains are fantastic. The inspiration for these technologies comes from cochlear implants. I don't know. Wow. One of you, some of you has a cochlear implant. But people thought at the beginning that this would never work because the signal is so messy. So as we listen to that signal, it's just so messy. How could you ever hear anything? But the fact is, the brain will hear and the brain can interpret the signals and can actually generate signals if we have powerful enough computers we can actually read the signals that our nerve cells make in ways that we i frankly we would never i would never have imagined we'd be
1: able to understand what the brain is trying to convey so when I was reading this section of your book, I, my science fiction brain went a little <laughs> crazy thinking, you know, wow, we're pretty close to being able to, if, 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 if we can be programmed to, to give these signals to a limb, why not a table? Why not a chair over there? Like this is really kind of an amazing <laughs> potential. For a lot of applications. Yes. Yes. That's interesting. I hadn't extended it that far, but you're right. So we could,
0: um, you, you, there is uh, the possibility of reading out brain signals
1: to mobilize anything. Anything. Yeah. So I'm going to ask you a really um, simple question about. I, so I doubt it's going to be simple. <laughs> That's okay. I'm ready. <laughs> well, this whole idea of this computational power that we have, what exactly is that? And what, why did it develop and how is it that it's, and is the computational power, you know, are we finally, are we getting to biology after the physical world because the biological world has more information in it that finally we have the computational power to grapple with? Is that the right way
0: to put it? You know, it, it, it's a great question. It's a question of, it, it's kind of the history of ideas, right? The history of discovery, and we are limited by the technologies at hand. You asked me earlier a really great, great question: How did we get the physics parts list before we got the biology parts list? How was that possible? Well, it ends up that the technologies that J.J. Thompson used to finally see the electron weren't available until he just before he used them, and the technologies that we needed to figure out the parts of biology, weren't there except for, frankly, many of them were developed during World War II. So a lot of the experiments that showed that DNA was the substance that carries information from one organism to its children, right? Um, the centrifuge, the ultra centrifuge, that was a technology that was developed during World War II as part of the atomic bomb project. But coming out of the war, there were centrifuges around and physicists actually were the founders of molecular biology and they used those tools. So we are limited to the technologies that we have in hand or we can invent. And one of the um, distant outcomes of this convergence of biology with engineering will be another set of technologies that will be used to invent whatever that future is that my crystal ball is just far too fuzzy to see.
1: Well, it, it does feel like our tools, tool making is, is really drives our intellectual attainments and, uh, and we devise tools as needed, kind of. So this, this ability of some of the researchers that you've profiled to really kind of keep themselves flexible to what am I trying to look at here is, uh, is maybe their, their most brilliant piece. You know, it is, but I have to say at
0: the uh, Koch Institute for Integrative Cancer Research, where some of these people work, we have a dozen biologists, cancer biologists, and we put them together with a dozen engineers and um, a handful of clinicians. And it's fascinating to see the evolution of this system. It's a new system, right? A new new place, a new kind of uh, of conversation. And the thing that I find so exciting is that the faculty, you know, some of whom we are obviously younger than I, they, they remain, you know, they, they're learning these, these languages as a second language, and they're just not perfectly fluent. But they're graduate students and postdocs who are growing up in this integrated environment. Uh, they don't know who's an engineer, who's a biologist. They don't care. They just can draw from the entire tool mm-hmm. set from both disciplines and are going to invent a future that I can't imagine, So I think one of the exciting things is putting together um, people in a university environment where you have a combination of senior investigators, students, undergraduates, graduate students who are just um, forming their ideas of the world, just gathering up their toolkits for their lives. So it's a very um, exciting possibility. We often think of the university as something that's really quite fixed and really quite rigid, and there are rigidnesses about them, and some of them – serve good purposes, and some of them um, are not so useful. But when you create conditions where uh, young people can be exposed to the newest ideas, um, you just have enormous confidence that they're going to invent their way out of the next dilemma for us.
1: Well, I know that you know just from when I've been teaching at the California College of the Arts and the design program, that the, uh, what I learned from the students who are a lot younger than me mm-hmm. is at least equal, if not greater, than what I teach them. Mm-hmm. Because of where they're coming from and what they intuitively understand and i'm you know i 'm always gobsmacked at like what I have to recalibrate how I think, so that in- amazing collaboration that goes on in colleges and universities is is a very precious thing that we have here um so i'll I'll ask there's a couple of a couple of themes to some of these questions one of them is how do we save the world <laughs> <laughs> Okay, uh, I can tell you how we're. Doctor Dr. Hockford <laughs> can answer that question. <laughs> it only takes
0: 90 seconds, I promise. <laughs> actually, it is pretty easy. Uh, the way we save, we invent our way to saving the world. Um, I, I like the, that. The last, the last um, sentence in the book actually expresses my greatest fear, my greatest hope, which is that uh, in times of war, there are incredible bursts of technology. The technology was developed during World War II, absolutely astonishing. Even the Cold War, the race to the moon. In 1961, when President Kennedy announced we were going to go to the moon, send a man to the moon, bring him back, 50th anniversary being celebrated this year, um, there was no technology on hand that was made that possible. It all had to be invented. And in eight years, we accomplished this impossible task. So um, for me... I think the challenges that we face today, I hope, and I tend to be kind of a cockeyed optimist, that it will be the promise of peace and not the threat of war that will get us motivated to actually solve these problems because the prospect of war over insufficient resources in every domain we can imagine is just too gruesome for me to imagine. It requires an international kind of coalition that I would say mm, we're moving backwards from rather than forwards into, um, but I hope that uh, more sober minds uh, will come to the task, actually not just in the United States, but all over the world, understanding that we really have to pull together or we're going to be pulled apart.
1: Well, a, a very, very important part of your book is in the, is not one of these these profiles, but in your It's an afterword or or the final part of your book where you discuss Mm -hmm. funding for for research in universities. And uh, you give a history of of funding through um, FDR um, funding, you know, tremendous research and going into debt to do so. And then, you know, subsequent presidents pulling back from that until Kennedy then funded the, the moon Shot um, and you correlate technological innovation with economic growth, and you point out that today the U.S. is spending less proportionally than our competitors on the world stage on original research. Um, And you also draw a nice, beautiful, you know, distinction between um, research and development, and that private companies tend to 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 re, to fund development when they're going to get something into a marketplace. But if you just do that, you know, first of all, you miss out on all of these, these amazing inventions that you've just told us about, mm-hmm. because nobody would have known to get there from where they started from. Um, so it's, it's a very important message and situation. Yeah. So it, it
0: is an ecosystem. And um, one of the great gifts of, FDR and, importantly, Van River Bush, who was the the person who was the main architect of the technology burst during World War II, was this idea that we should commit ourselves to the same kind of investment for the technologies for peace, for the technologies that would build the industries that provide jobs and grow our economy. And that has proved to be an incredibly successful recipe. But... Companies can't afford to fund fundamental research because who knows which what of that's going to make any difference. Uh, historically, there have been some companies that have funded it, but they no longer do so. So, Bell Labs is you know probably the most fam- famous, but there were a number of companies that had very um, big research and development labs. But uh, the federal government has provided the lion's share of that uh, that support and. You know, when a great idea finally bubbles up from this crazy stew of people just pursuing things based on curiosity, and someone seizes that and turns it into a cure for cancer, for example, or a new battery technology, you know, at at some point that can transition into the domain of industry, and they can invest, and they do, uh, to bring those ideas and uh, those uh, products into the marketplace. However... Uh, federal funding for basic research has dropped as a as a percent of GDP reached its peak in the mid 60s at about two percent of GDP. This year we're at point seven point eight percent, and you could say, well, still a lot of money. It is still a lot of money, but uh, we have um, you know we actually prosecuted this technology in a uh, innovation economy after World War II by ourselves because the only other countries that could have participated were build- busy rebuilding their. Cities after the war, but now there's competition all over all over the world. Uh, One of the great delights about for uh, for being of being MIT's president is every week, at least once a week, there was someone in my office from somewhere in the world, and they all had the same story. The story was, we understand how the United States dominated economic growth after. World War II, second half of the 20th century. We understand the recipe. You invest federal money, government money, in fundamental research. You, most of it gets spent at universities, and those universities will develop the technologies. And we understand that MIT is an important piece of that, and we want to build MIT. Help us figure out how to compete, be part of this. And it, it is a game plan, and it works, and countries around the world now are using that game plan, and that's fantastic. However, um, I still believe the United States can play an outsized role in inventing the next future. Um, But we can't if we're not funding fundamental research uh, at a level that is competitive with other countries around the world. The other piece of this that I worry about is... um, Further down the pipeline, we did a study at MIT, and it ends up that spinning out, starting up companies, we do pretty well. But scaling up is hard, and scaling up is where it really Mm. costs a lot. And all the technologies in the book are what we call tough tech. Long cycle, capital intensive. Just to give you one example. So Herceptin is a life-saving drug. Women with this kind of breast cancer that responds to Herceptin Was a death sentence before Herceptin was on the market. But between the discovery of the gene, which is called HER2, discovered by Bob Weinberg as a cancer gene, and FDA approval of Herceptin, 20 years and probably somewhere between one and two billion dollars. It's just hard work. It's not that, you know, people are being lazy. They're working as hard as they can. So this is, this is really, really tough stuff. Now, we talked about the fundamental research, but we talk about investments for scale up. We're kind of stupid about this. You know, we privilege, we give tax incentives for long-term investments, but long-term investments are less than two years. I, I, that's not long-term. No, and I'm so not. I, you know, I personally believe, and there are others who have articulated this, this idea, is if we could tax privilege, you give people an incentive to tie their money up for a long period of time to actually get these things into the marketplace. I think that could be one way of, of uh,
1: accelerating our progress. Several people have asked about, um, about these technologies. One, one about CRISPR, mm. uh, which have a potential to allow a single individual or small group to engineer dangerous weapons like organisms. Mm. Um, what do we do about that? A related question is, How do we continue developing the frontiers of knowledge in universities such as MIT without giving away our intellectual um, capital to entities that will use it against us? Mm -hmm. Um, This would seem to be an ever increasingly difficult problem to solve. Of course, we put parameters around how we allow things to be used. And yet we Mm -hmm. see that there's a very huge hacking community out there who's pretty good at a disrupting. Yeah, let me just uh, kind of um, conflate them, probably
0: resulting in some imprecision. But um, the CRISPR question I get all the time. I don't talk about CRISPR in the book. CRISPR is another more powerful, more accurate gene editing technology. And when um, gene engineering was first possible, late 70s, the people who were Really, at the forefront of this, both the scientists and the bioethicists got together at Asilomar, and they said, here are the rules. We're all going to agree on the rules. We don't know what this technology might do, but we understand that we've got to set boundaries. So they set some boundary conditions, they set up the guardrails, and then they all said, we're going to follow these rules. And actually, that worked out pretty well. But it requires a community of a shared belief. And um, I'm worried about our ability to do that again, because when gene engineering first began, it was the United States and Western Europe, and we have some natural alliances and, uh, and kind of natural uh, history and culture. And I don't know that as a, an international community of scientists, whether we'll be able to set the parameters set up the guardrails and have the kind of agreement that will allow us to actually retain them. So the, whoever asked this question about CRISPR, um, it, you know, shares my concern. So there's a lot of um, concern about editing of the human germline. And, yeah, I, you can worry about that. At some point that's going to be a real concern, and there was this... Um, Uh, Chinese experiment. But the fact is that if I wanted to have a blue-eyed kid, we don't know what the genes are. So we are still in our infancy in terms of understanding which genes you'd manipulate to get the particular characteristics you want, whether it's height or intelligence, we just don't know. So that's a distant threat. The more immediate threat in my mind is pathogens. And so, you know, we've got a really good vaccine against polio. I don't know how hard it would be to generate a polio virus that actually could evade the vaccine. So I think that's a very enormous danger, and I don't think it's talked about enough. And I'm not sure, um, as an international community of scientists, we focused enough on, on pathogen editing. So that's my biggest fear because uh, they're very powerful.
1: Was it a discussion in your book or, or was it something that I wa- watched in one of your talks about the uh, military um, investment in in this kind of research? Because the military will, of course, um, invest in defending against these yes. kinds of things. Yeah. yeah. So I'm
0: not sure, you know, um, when I was president, I actually had <clears throat> access uh, to a, a lot of um, uh, Defense Department uh, research. I, I don't do that anymore, and so I don't know how much they are, in, you know, uh, how much research is going on in this domain. I think it's very important, and I think most people in the United States don't understand just how powerful the research arm of the Defense Department is and how much they have given us. Um, uh, so I maybe I'll just uh, hope that um, they have that under control. But I think as a community scientist, that's another place where regulations need to be
1: um, in place. Well, I have a question for you, which is, it's been some time since you did your own original research. Mm-hmm. Do you miss it? <laughs> Could you go back to it? Has it changed so much in <laughs> a short period of time relatively? You know, that's a great question. Um,
0: I feel fortunate to have had two careers in one. And um, I. Um, it, the first answer is, I don't miss having the lab i 'm um, a bit a d d and I love having this general curiosity uh, that can be met by you know thousands of different interesting um, uh, different ideas that i 'm now privileged uh, uh, to to uh, to enjoy there is um but I think that um, you know what a delight uh, to be able to gaze across you know essentially the entire you know, frontier of discovery and have a sense of it. But, you know, I was um, I was in an academic leadership position for about 15 years, and I often described myself as Rip Van Winkle. So when I went to sleep, <laughs> when I became uh, dean at Yale, uh, there were three different kinds of RNA, just three. <laughs> and it was, you know, absolutely certain there were three kinds of RNA, so during the 15 years uh, between the deanship and the end of the presidency, I didn't really think about RNA much. I certainly wasn't reading every issue of 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 neuron or science or, or nature that came across. And um, I, I woke up, and there are dozens of different kinds of RNA. And I said, what? <laughs> what happened to the rule? The rule was there were three kinds of RNA. And that is kind of my continual um, delight and astonishment about just how fast these fields move. Um, so I'm still struggling, you know, to catch up just in terms of what I understand. I don't think I could ever open the lab again. Um, it's a, you know, it, it is a kind of commitment to actually get up to speed. Um, I'm not sure my runway is long enough.
1: <laughs> well, I want to say, I want to thank you very deeply for this book. It's, it's an enormous service to the rest of us who can read it and get some sense of, of the kinds of inquiry that are going on out there among these incredibly um, smart and collaborative people, and also it is extremely hopeful, really, with all the problems that any of these individual situations um, provoke. Uh, this this incredible human ingenuity that you profile. The way that you have selected the projects um, in a very you know, interesting way to give us a, a framework for grappling with understanding how uh, researchers approach what you research. And, and uh, this, the whole idea of these, uh, these uh, parts lists is just fascinating. Um, so thank you. Well, it's a lot of fun talking to you about (laughs) this. Someone who is so insightful uh, about how ideas uh, come into form. So thank you very much. Well, and then there's questions that some of you asked that I didn't uh, get to, but I think we cover something of them a little bit. So let's give a huge thanks to Susan Hockfield. former president of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and author of the book, The Age of Living Machines. How biology, biology. <laughs> will build the next technology revolution, we'll build the yeah. next technology revolution. Yeah. We would also like to remind you that copies of the book are available for purchase and Susan will be available to sign them. I'm Mary Ellen Hannibal and this meeting of the Commonwealth Club is now concluded.
0: Well, Thanks. Bye.